All right, Jesse, I'm still seething about last week's sex scandal. Who's the big baddie this time around? Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Hide your husband. Even hide your mother's-in-law. Because there ain't nobody safe around the giggling granny herself, Nanny freaking Doss, who killed up to 12 people in plain sight over a 30-year period. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest. And where even, or especially, loved ones aren't off-limits for the most truly depraved. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Speaking of reviews, we are thanking people who are giving us reviews by giving them these really cute, cool stickers that we have in the merch store now. So guys, if you have left a review in the past, please send us a screenshot of it. And if you leave us a review in the future, we've got stickers for you. Yeah, so just going off of what Jesse said, just d- send us a little DM on Instagram or email us at lovers at lovemurder.love with a screenshot of your review, and we will get you a code for your stickers along with free shipping. And then you also, if you want, you can uh, check out the merch store and tack a little something else onto your free sticker order if you want and take advantage of that free shipping. So we've got some cool clothing up there already. We've got a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, long sleeve, and a beanie, which have all been doing really well um and we're gonna have some more up by next week yes i'm actually very very excited christmas is coming early to me because i am waiting on my beanie and my sweatshirt uh the one that i like the most is the trust your gut sweatshirt i'm seriously so excited about that one it's gonna be really cute with the beanie and the sweatshirt together too i feel like it's a real look Yes, as soon as I get mine, I will make Nathaniel play Instagram husband and take a picture of me and all of my pregnant glory so you guys can see the full love murder ensemble. I think I already used up all of my Instagram husband credits this year for our pregnancy post, but um, I'll definitely (laughs) take- Dan had to take like 25 and they all looked exactly the same. (laughs) Okay, so- Guys, this is probably the biggest body count we have ever had on Love Murder. This woman is completely off her rocker. And the craziest part of the story is that she was just killing in plain sight for years and getting away with it. You will lose your minds as I tell you the story. And also, I I did hear that a lot of people have covered this story, and I don't know how I had never heard of it, but it's blowing my mind. Have you heard of Nanny Doss before? No. No? Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that I get to be the one to introduce you, Andy, because she is... She's really a monster. She is a true monster, and this is a crazy story. Where have you heard that they've done it before? 
Oh, I just saw it on some like um, true crime group that was like, oh, these are the stories that I've heard a lot. And I was like, actually, I'll write those down because I haven't heard this one at all. Um, so I, I hope that this is new to some of you guys. It was new to me. If not, I hope that we give you a little bit more information uh, than maybe you've heard in the past. So I got all of my information uh, from the book Black Widow by Ryan Green, who is a two-peat love murder author at this point. He also wrote uh, the book that we used for Cursed for Leonardo Chianciulli. That crazy bitch. So he is two for two with some of the most insane women we have ever covered. If I remember correctly, too, um, I feel like he was kind of like a writing crush for you. Like he, the way he wrote. Yes. I I love the way. Guys, I have to tell you, he's about to be a three-peat because I found out that he had a Christmas murder book as well and so next week we're coming back to ryan green we're going to the well he's our our most beloved author so far i feel like you also do a really good job of like injecting jesse juice into the stories always there's it's basically like jesse juice with like chunks of uh like fruit (laughs) of other writer fruit (laughs) in it so So. i'll do my best to make it a a love murder smoothie here Okay, let's get into the story. On a sweltering day in July of 1945, Malvina Haynes labored for hours and hours, crying through the pain, desperately attempting to bring her second child into the world. She was grateful for her mother, Nanny, who took charge, dabbing the sweat from her brow, providing her with ice-cold glasses of water, and giving her comfort through every painstaking contraction. Finally, after hours that felt like days, and her mother holding her hand as she pushed, Melvina brought a beautiful, perfect baby girl into the world. So exhausted by her ordeal, relieved at the healthy delivery, and completely out of it due to the copious amounts of ether the doctors had administered, Melvina gladly handed over the newborn child to her doting mother and slipped into a hazy slumber. As Melvina's eyelids fluttered closed, she had the strangest dream, her mother drawing a pin from her hat and pushing it into the soft spot on her newborn skull. But before she could cry out, darkness came for her. When Melvina opened her eyes again, her baby was dead. Nanny had handed off the sweet infant as soon as the nurse noticed she wasn't breathing, but it was too late. A doctor explained to the hysterical Melvina that after such a lengthy childbirth, it seemed likely the child had been deprived of oxygen for too long, but the initial examination could show no clear cause. These things happened. What could they do? As Melvina grieved, she couldn't shake the nightmarish vision of her mother murdering her own baby, but it couldn't be true, could it? That would just be madness. There's no way her sweet mother would be capable of such cruelty, right? That would be a big old N.O., Melvina. Sweet baby Haynes wasn't Nanny Doss's first victim and wouldn't be her last. Over a 30-some year period, Nanny would murder 11 people, perhaps even 12, a serial killer who bumped off her loved ones in plain sight. Welcome to the spine-tingling murders of the gruesome, giggling granny, Nasty Nanny Doss. 
that entire story just terrified me. Oh, it's it's real heavy, especially when you're expecting a baby. Yeah, that is insane. It's it's just bone chilling. And Nanny's first few victims were extremely helpless. So I was going to say, very hard to. Do you cover the the baby right now, or can I ask questions about the baby? (laughs) Well, we're going to get into the babies. There's going to be children. So trigger warning, guys. There's definitely going to be some kid death in this one. I will not linger long on it. But Nanny was certainly a piece of work, and she took out copious members of her family. Is her real name Nanny, or do they call her Nanny like as an She was born term? a Nancy, and it's a nickname. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So Nanny was born on November 4th, 1905, to an unwed teen mother in Blue Mountain, Alabama. Nanny's mother, Lou, had been kicked out of her home the moment her father detected the pregnancy. Refusing to name the father of her baby, or because she didn't know who he was, Lou industriously set to supporting herself working odd, menial jobs until the day cursed Nanny made her blighted appearance on this earth. A week after Nanny's birth, Lou's luck changed when a local farmer named James Hazel proposed marriage. James was a real catch for this ruined woman, a hardworking man with acres to his name who didn't mind a two-for-one package certainly seemed hard to come by in rural Alabama. But after a few weeks of wedded bliss, the rumor mill settled on the idea that the new husband was also a new blood father. Why else would an eligible bachelor take on such a burden? The matter of Nanny's birth became one of a poor timing rather than true bastardization, meaning that they thought that James had actually always been the birth father of Nanny. Yeah. This is not to say life with James was a dream. From the moment Lou set foot on the farm and Nanny could remember, the two were set to hard farm labor. Four more siblings followed Nanny in quick succession, all the better to work the land. From the time Nanny could remember, she absolutely hated her father. Yeah, I totally get having that many kids when you have land to farm. (laughs) Yeah, when you have farm work, I'm surprised they only popped out five total. Yeah, (laughs) What are you, early 1900s? Yeah, that's crazy. For what do you sure. in in rural Alabama? That's nuts. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't have ten. James prioritized farm work over education, and though he allowed his children to attend school sporadically, he would pull them out frequently, which set them terribly behind. Nanny, who had a love of reading, was especially affected by this, as she was forced to tend to her four younger siblings at a disturbingly young age. By the time she was 10, her father pulled her out of school altogether, and her education never progressed beyond elementary school. Oof. Yeah. In 1912, when Nanny was seven, the family was allowed to take a rare trip downstate via train to visit some of James's family. Nanny's mother smuggled her a true romance magazine, and while she was entranced with the stories of love, disaster struck. It had been stormy outside, and a tree collapsed upon the track, giving the conductor only seconds to slam on the brakes and avoid collision. When he did, every single passenger on board had been violently flung from their seats, but none more so than Nanny, who had flown head first into a metal bar and been knocked unconscious for the rest of the day's journey. So, 
Ding, ding, ding. We have a childhood head injury. Yep, I'd say. Uh Uh-huh. At seven years old, Nanny suffered a concussion so powerful it caused permanent brain damage. Just like our gal Jacqueline from a couple weeks ago, Nanny would suffer debilitating headaches and fits of depression and rage for the rest of her miserable life. Oh, my God. Yeah, and life didn't improve for Nanny because her father refused to take her to a doctor to examine her injuries and even worse, was not opposed to doling out beatings to his wife or children. So she never even got her head looked at. And he was knocking her around constantly and making her do farm work. So I'm sure that exacerbated whatever issue she already had. Jesus Christ. So Nanny did her best to escape the beatings and backbreaking farm labor by reading her mother's romance magazines and books. And she definitely had a huge knight in shining armor fantasy that someone would come and take her away from all of this. But she had no natural outlet for romance because her father forbade all of his daughters from attending dances or town fairs, lest they come across big bad boys, nor were they allowed to wear makeup or fix their hair. The one time Nanny tried to curl her hair, her father beat her mercilessly. Ew. Yep. According to Ryan Green, James was obsessed with maintaining their purity even though it was something he hadn't valued at all in his own wife. Lou couldn't even argue with him because she knew just how badly sex outside of marriage could go, as it went for her, and he used that shame to bludgeon her whenever she tried to speak up for the girls. All that Nanny could do was wait and wait for her future to arrive, walking on the knife edge of desperation between wanting a husband and the escape that he would bring her from her current state of captivity and fearing all men as the lecherous animals that her father painted them to be. In the end, the assault did not come from strangers on the outside, as the girls had been trained to expect, but from somewhere closer to home. Even as they grew older, the whole family still continued to travel with James and Lou to visit relatives, including no small number of family reunions that basically devolved into getting drunk in a barn. The extended Hazel family was so sprawling that almost anyone could have attended these events. And while James' vicious outbursts and demand for respect at all costs had been intended to make his girls quiet and pliant, it also made them into the perfect victims for the predators that walked among their relatives. Oh, God. James discovered an uncle or cousin molesting his daughters. He beat them solidly, and the rest of the family closed ranks against them. It didn't take long before the message spread along every twisted branch of the family tree that they were off limits. Except for Nanny. When James caught one of his cousins trying to force his hand up her skirt behind the barn when she was only 12 years old, it was she who received the punishment and banishment from the social event. When he caught an uncle unbuttoning her dress, it was she who got sent off to her room for being too flirtatious. Disgusting. Disgusting. The same grapevine for perverts carried the message out to anyone who might want to attend. James didn't give a damn what happened to Nanny. And so that also kind of makes me wonder if he wasn't actually her father, if he cared about his other daughters but not Nanny. Yeah, that's what I would think. Yeah, so, ugh, poor nanny. So she's 
does she kill him because I oh she wants to (laughs) she wants to i'm not gonna spoil it yet we have to let the story unfold but i think definitely her father was the creation of all the daddy issues that might have caused some deaths later on for sure for sure you think Yeah, it is no wonder she wanted out as soon as humanly possible. She finally got her chance in 1920 at the age of 15 when she went to work for the Linen Thread Mill, a garment factory, and met 17-year-old Charlie Braggs. He was a tall and handsome boy who represented escape, if not much else, to Nanny. Just four short months after they began courting, the teenagers were wed in a simple church wedding. Oh gosh, they're so young. They're 15 and 17. Sounds about right for Alabama, though. Yeah, in Alabama in 1920. It's, yeah, that's... This This has love, murder, disaster written all over it. It does. It does. <laughs> the courtship and wedding lacked any nuance of the romance, and Nanny's diary from the time suggested she wished to continue courting other boys, but was railroaded by her beau and her father, who struck a deal for her hand in marriage as though the old farmer was selling a cow. Nanny's bitterness increased when she moved into her marital home and found that her household already had a woman of the house, and that would always be her mother-in-law, who had no intention of ever moving out. She didn't know that before? She had no idea. Charlie (laughs) hadn't prepared her at all for this reality. So the next morning, she thought that the mother-in-law was visiting for the wedding. And so the next morning on their first full day of being Mrs. Charlie Bragg, she wakes up and the mother-in-law's like, well, this is how he likes his breakfast. So she's making the breakfast and she's like, hey, Charlie, when is your mom going home? And he's like, she is home, silly. She lives with us. Well, they are 15 and 17, so I don't think that's too. They need an adult. (laughs) They need adult supervision. They can't like get anything on their own. They'd have to have someone sign for them. (laughs) Yeah, you can't even buy a pack of smokes, kids. Oh, my God. I hope you don't have sexual problems because you can't buy porn. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like, did they not? So they didn't consummate their marriage then, I take it. Oh, they did. Yeah, the two women battled for dominance in the home, eventually reaching somewhat of a detente as Nanny gave Charlie what mother brags could not, sex and children. Nanny popped out four daughters from 1923 to 1927, one girl per year. Oh, my God. Yeah, so the first one was when she was only 18. (sighs) And the last one was when she was 22. That is one girl for every year that somebody would go to a four-year university or high school. It's crazy. So... Really, really, really loved her eldest daughter, Melvina. But with every additional pregnancy, she gained more apathy and became more depressed, eventually turning to booze, cigarettes, and other men to cure her boredom and frustration. Oh! Whenever her mother, Lou, or mother Braggs would babysit, Nanny would run off to the gin mills of nearby Anniston, Alabama, where there was a military base that provided scores of willing young men to carouse with. Um, do you remember who else found a Rockefeller at the Aniston? Yeah, who was that? That was Incest Candy. It was at the same military base? The same military base. So when she was getting her yayas on and off with these guys, it was earlier 
than when Candy was there. Candy was there, remember, during World War II? Yeah. So this is still like the late. Yeah, this is the late 20s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So stories filtered back to Blue Mountain about Nanny, who was around 22 at this time. And they said that she was roaming bars topless and going into the back rooms for sex. Oh, my God. Uh, Nanny gone wild. Well, is the mother-in-law still at the house? Because, like. Yeah, the mother-in-law is still at the house. And so the mother-in-law and Charlie both heard these rumors, but none of them could be proven. And Charlie had very little room to talk because he had been conducting his own really sad affairs with a variety of co-workers at the linen thread mill over the years. So he was also having affairs. Nanny knew all about his various extracurricular activities and noted them all in a diary to use to blackmail him when necessary. Oh, my God. This is a bad marriage. Why even, like, be married? I don't know. I think that... They probably just wanted to have sex and they thought they had to get married and then they were just trapped in it just so young because people didn't get divorced, you know? Also, like, once again, I will never be able to wrap my head. I mean, obviously, because we are both having kids so late in life. Yeah. Like, but so it must be so different in your 20s. But I like I cannot imagine like having a kid and then going out and like sleeping with someone else. <laughs> no. Like, I don't but want I anyone. I can't imagine we <laughs> met when we were like 20 and 21. Could you imagine if I was like, really cool, let's go out to all of those seedy bars in Boston we went out to all night and then we're like, have to go home to pick up my kid. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. So it's it's hard being this young and having a child too. Yeah, it's so much. So by the end of 1927, Charlie was going off on benders with his lovers and leaving Nanny at home with four children under the age of five and his sour mother. Something had to give and Nanny decided maybe it was time to teach cheating Charlie a lesson. The next time he came home from a weekend booze binge, he found almost the entire community of Blue Mountain in his house offering him condolences. At first, he was too hungover and bewildered to notice that everyone was wearing black. But when it finally sunk in that he was at a funeral, he panicked, thinking his mother had died in his absence. The truth was even worse, as he soon discovered that though his mother was fine, his two middle daughters had passed away from acute food poisoning. Mm-hmm. Oh. Andy's just dropped. Sorry, mouth. yeah, I always forget that. Like no one can see <laughs> no one me. Can see you? I'll just narrate. Andy just looked like an emoji for a second with a huge open mouth. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Uh huh. Baffled by this grim turn of events, he begged his mother and nanny to explain what had happened. Nanny explained that something had gone terribly wrong with the grain in the porridge that they had had for breakfast. Little Florine, the youngest, was still breastfeeding, and Melvina, the eldest, had only had toast that morning and escaped the gruesome fate. By lunchtime, neither of the middle girls could walk, and though a doctor was sent for, he could only identify the signs of acute food poisoning. It had been too long, and the poisonous food had already been absorbed in the small children's vulnerable systems. Did Nanny do this? Yes. 100% Holy shit. shit. 
But nobody knows. And he doesn't even know for sure. But later on, it's pretty confirmed that she did. Yep. Even Mother Braggs, who could find fault in Nanny in the best of times, could not find any fault with her actions here. She actually was angry with Charlie for being on a bender and not being there to say goodbye to his babies, which is also fair. While some were looking at Charlie askance for his absence, almost all were comforting and praising Nanny. The little girl's deaths were being treated like some horrible, unavoidable act of God. That Nanny was, uh huh. She was getting a lot of attention for this too. So that's going to start setting the tone for her of how she gets like attention that she needs. Exactly. Everybody thinks that she's being so stoic and she's handling this with grace. The doctor had been with the girls in their last moments and deemed autopsies unnecessary. He was just like, I was there when they died. It was just really, really bad food poisoning. It happens sometimes. And I guess it happened more often in 1927, you know? Oh, my God. I wonder if she, like, if she, like, asked him to not do an autopsy or something, you know? Perhaps. The funerals occurred quickly and before Charlie had fully grasped what was going on, his babies were in the ground. By the time Charlie came to terms with what had occurred, he was convinced Nanny had had a diabolical hand in it. No way. Smart guy, that Charlie. In the dead of night, Charlie packed a bag, grabbed a sleeping Malvina, and ran for their lives. This is a really good instance of somebody listening to their gut. We say it all of the time, people ignoring the red flags, not listening to their gut. Charlie was out. So he took Malvina, but Florine, because she was still breastfeeding, was still there? She was still breastfeeding, so she was sleeping in Nanny's arms. (sighs) So he couldn't take her. He wanted to. He said he would have 100% grabbed Florine, too, if he was able to. Nanny was incensed. But then she got even more attention from the townspeople because they felt bad that she had had a tragedy. And then her treacherous, cowardly husband left her in the middle of the night, stealing her eldest daughter. Ran off, yep. And ran off on her, leaving her with his mother and his last child, which was really weird to the townspeople. But without Charlie's income, the meager family savings was not going to last long. Lucky for Nanny's pockets, she soon had even one less mouth to feed when Mother Braggs began to suffer from poor health and intense stomach pains. Nanny did her best to soothe the older woman with her favorite sweetened stewed prunes, but it was all for naught when Mother Braggs finally passed away with her son still missing. <laughs> the, <laughs> yep. The belief in Blue Mountain was that she had died of equal parts natural causes and heartbreak because of her son being such a louse. Wow, everyone really had those rose-colored glasses on, huh? They did. Nanny had them fooled. Not a soul suspected her angelic daughter-in-law, who just seemed to be having quite a run of bad luck. She was like having 2020, but like in 1927. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So Nanny didn't actually get to keep the house to herself for much longer. In the summer of 1928, Charlie showed back up with Melvina, as well as a brand new fiancé and her young son. He kicked Nanny out of their home, and she actually took Melvina and Florine back to live with her parents on the farm that she had fought so hard to escape. So 
After all that murdering, she ended up back on the farm with two of her kids. Did did the son, was it Charlie's son or was it just the fiance's son? It was the just the fiance's okay. son. So okay. it, he found like a single lady who had a kid. Yeah. Um, and I think what happened was that when he met this woman, um, she didn't necessarily care about his kids, but he got frustrated that Nanny was living in the house that he was still paying the mortgage on. And so he like came back and kicked her out. And I, I would think that he would say, I'm keeping Melvina and Florine because you killed our two other kids. But I don't think that his new wife wanted them around. And so Nanny got custody of the two girls. It's really fucked. Really, really not good. Not yeah. a good move. Charlie, yeah. you escaped with your life, you selfish piece of shit piece of shit and then when you got another piece of tail you're like ah my kids can die now <laughs> whatever yeah, it's fucked yep um so anyways nanny's back on the farm now with melvina and florine and when the divorce papers came they actually said that it was charlie's fault because of adultery that the marriage had ended so nanny was like sign me up for that it is his fault and she has no she problem signing them does she get like more money or something if it's no I think she just wanted she liked that impression to give people that she was faultless in all things yeah, she's a little so the fact, she likes to play the victim she likes to be in everyone's sympathy so I think she liked the fact that she could be like he cheated on me and then he came back with this woman he was cheating on me with and he kicked me out of the home and the daughter's like, and he left our daughters. He kicked them out of the home. Like, she could just make him the bad guy, you know? Yeah. So she managed to get a job at a cotton mill in Anniston and returned to the romantic musings of her youth, becoming obsessed with the Lonely Hearts columns in her romance rags. Nanny dove into her correspondence with abandon. She was still young and good-looking despite a divorce and four pregnancies, and her photo actually attracted much correspondence. Oh, yeah, is I mean, she she's, like, still, she's like 23 years old. She's just a she, baby. Is she like Jacqueline the Ripper attractive or? <laughs> so I only found pictures of her when she's a little older. But by all accounts, she was like, let's say good looking for the depression. <laughs> that is not something I'd want people to say about me. You is know, that, she's good looking for the Great Depression. Is that on a like tiered scale is that higher than good looking for victorian london <laughs> or you know I, 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 think, or... I think she's better looking than jacqueline i didn't realize until like after we did the podcast for jacqueline how truly atrocious looking she was and a lot of people brought it to my attention and i was like maybe i oversold jacqueline but that's what my source material did that book made it you know all the newspapers of the time were talking about her glowingly that that executioner that hangman he could not get enough of her slender neck he's a hangman i know he's like she's the most beautiful thing i've ever executed he's like usually executing english bulldogs <laughs> oh my god dad okay <laughs> so for several months she courted countless men long distance but in 1929 she met the only one worth meeting in person his name was robert franklin harrelson he went by frank and he was a 22 year old factory worker from nearby jacksonville alabama frank had a way with words and a dimpled chin that reminded nanny of clark gable even though he was Nanny's junior by two years, she was impressed by his maturity and his willingness to take on two young stepdaughters. 
The two courted for only about two months before Frank proposed. It was an immediate infatuation and attraction. She definitely had way more of that romance, like sexual infatuation with Frank than she had had with Charlie. She's older too, so it's like mm-hmm. she knows like what she 10 wants. Ten years later, right? Yeah, and he's like two years younger, so she's yeah. kind of getting her cougar on. Yeah. Yep. As they planned the wedding, Frank lined up a new job for himself at the Goodyear Textile Mill in Cedartown, Georgia. It was time for a fresh beginning for the whole family. Nanny's second church wedding was a larger affair. Almost the whole town came out to wish the tragic, long-suffering young woman well. Oh my God. Uh-huh. And send her on her way to Cedartown, Georgia to cause some damage there. Directly after the wedding, Frank and Nanny took the kids to their new home, which was a log cabin just down in the outskirts of Cedartown. The honeymoon didn't last long, however, within a few months when Frank failed to come home one night because he had been thrown in the town drunk tank. She found out that her new husband had not only a drinking problem, but he had also been brought up on felonious assault charges, not once, but twice in Jacksonville. Oh, no. Yeah, he liked to get drunk and fight, this guy. Suddenly, this need for a fresh start, why he had to move from Alabama, started to make sense to Nanny. Worse than his tendency toward the bottle was his habit of hitting Nanny and the girls. No. I was going to say, before you said that, it's like um, Nick Cage's character in Con Air. Do you remember his character? He's like a military dude who gets like, in fights every time he dr- drinks, but like deadly fights, like, yes. and but he's like a good person and has like a daughter who he like loves, like he loves her, but like, yes. but now I'm laughing because one time I hadn't seen that movie, and Nathaniel and I were in a bar in Saratoga, which is like where my parents live, and there was this other guy next to me, and he starts talking to me, and Nathaniel's on the other side, and he's like, "Hey, hey, your man ever served time?" And I was like. No, actually, no. Yes, it hasn't been upstate, or I don't know what else you say. And the guy's like, I have. And then he, like, basically just told me the plot of Con Air about why he went inside. And I didn't, I hadn't seen the movie. So I'm like, oh my God, this is tragic. And he's like, yeah. And he's telling me, like, this guy picked a fight with him in this parking lot. And he's like telling me this whole thing. And Nathaniel's like dying on the other side and he paid the check like while I was having this whole conversation and we left and he's like that guy just told you the entire plot of why Nick Cage was in jail in Con Air and I was like I thought it was so crazy (laughs) why have you never told me this story I don't know especially because you guys fun fact about Andy huge Nick Cage fan huge she she loves like to text me nick cage gifts and then talk about like early cage to mid cage to late cage and it's all very bewildering to me because i've seen very few cage movies now i'm like really sensing there's like a cage film in the works tonight <laughs> i just you know i don't know what it's gonna be i don't know if it's gonna be an early cage mid cage or late cage you know you never know until you start scrolling you're gonna have to tell us yeah. what you decided what you decided upon for I think definitely definitely like early or mid not late yeah not late cage no they early. can be depressing sometimes except for national treasure oh nathaniel loves national treasure it's good it's a good one that's a good good flick okay so <laughs> We really went off on a tangent there. I don't know how much of that one we can keep in. 
I think all of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So despite all of this, Nanny stayed with Frank for nearly 16 years without killing him. That's a miracle. Jesus. Yeah, she was reformed, I guess, for a little while. She ended up raising both Melvina and Florine to blooming adulthood. The girls grew up fed the same romance magazines Nanny's mother had fed her and harboring the same dreams of escape that Nanny had. Basically, history was repeating itself here. Melvina married a nice boy named Mosey Haynes when they were both 18 in 1942. After less than a year, Melvina was pregnant and little Robert was born in early 1943. Nanny was delighted to be a grandmother, but felt a deep dread for Melvina deep down. Having child after child had wrecked her body, spirit, and first marriage. She didn't want Melvina, still the apple of Nanny's eyes, to follow in her footsteps. In 1944, while World War II raged across the globe, Nanny felt her own conflict as Melvina announced she was expecting once more, barely a year after she had had Robert. It didn't help that Melvina, who was a tiny woman, suffered greatly throughout the second pregnancy, unable to walk for most of her third trimester due to her displaced hips. What? Yeah, it was bad. She had a bad pregnancy. So I think Nanny was very affected by how she felt like Mosey, Melvina's husband, was just like making her a baby factory and it was causing little Melvina to have bad health, you know? Yeah, but I mean, this is only your second kid. It's not like your sixth. Yeah. So this, but for whatever reason, Nanny doesn't make sense. She was just no. upset about this. Yeah. The birth itself, like I described, was also agony, stretching over 24 hours while Nanny attempted to soothe and cheerlead her favorite child. When the healthy baby girl was finally placed in Nanny's arms, she felt not grandmotherly love, but resentment. So we don't know exactly what happened to the baby after birth because Nanny later would confess to some of her murders. She did not cop to this one. She yeah, but she murdered this baby. She's a result of like the head trauma and shit, which I feel like sometimes it like doesn't. They like also it kind of makes sense. There's there's later on you'll see some of her murders. Like she can excuse no murder is excusable, but like she has reasons for other murders. There's no reason nobody is going to look favorably upon you or care about you at all if you kill infants. A newborn. A newborn, literally just born, and your granddaughter. So I think that she would have never admitted to this anyway, and historians now believe she definitely killed this baby. Did she admit to killing her two children? No, she didn't admit to killing any children. Yeah, so I – yeah, of course she killed the baby then. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, my description of Melvina's account at the beginning was true. Through a medicated and exhausted haze, Melvina really did think that she saw Nanny remove a pin from her hat and use it on the baby's soft head. <gasps> Were you what? listening at the beginning? <laughs> I, I, just, I, I thought you said pushed her head. No, took a pin out of her hat and pushed it into the baby's head. Oh my god, that's not what I was envisioning. 
That is not what I was envisioning at all, and it was still horrible. I was That's even worse. Stronger reaction at the beginning. Oh my god, no! I just like I just when you were talking, imagined like suffocating and like pushing on the head, and then not a fucking pin, Jesse. In the head, Jesse. How can you tell me this story right now? I know, <laughs> but I don't know if that's what happened because that's what Melvina thought. Oh. And later on, Florine, when she told Florine, like, "Hey, I oh. had this terrible nightmarish vision." Florine started freaking out. Her sister, and she was like, "Okay, so you had the baby. I went out of the room." to tell Mosey that he had just become a father of a baby girl. And when I came back in, the baby was dead. And I saw mom with what seemed like a fake expression of grief on her face, toying with a hat pen. Quote, Florine said, making it dance between her fingers. So Florine and Melvina are like, is this possible? Did mom kill your baby wait and in addition like i like how could the nurse or the doctors not see no, uh, a puncture wound in the yeah, head yeah so that's why i don't know this is this is an account from the book and it's account actually like oh, in many sources that this is what the daughter saw but i feel like they would have seen a puncture wound in the baby's head 100 percent uh-huh. That's why so, I mean I still think that she killed it, but I think w- what I was envisioning, like she suffocated it. Like that's the only thing that would make sense to me. Yes, I agree with you because the doctors would be pain. like, "Oh, there's a hole in this infant's head." <laughs> yeah, they don't just come like that. <laughs> oh this god. Jessica, hole pray. <laughs> so Melvina's in a bad state. First of all, she is like thinking maybe her mother killed her baby. She is suffering from the loss of her child. And you can only imagine the crazy hormones that are flooding through her body because her body's all prepared to breastfeed an infant and going through just normal postpartum. And then you don't have a baby to feed. I mean, it's, it's beyond devastating. There's no words for it. So Melvina just decided, like, you know what? That was a weird thing that I saw. I'm not going to think that my mom's a killer. I'm not in my right state of mind. I have to get myself better. But she was super duper depressed. And like her mother before her, as soon as she was physically able, she began to leave young Robert with Nanny and go out and get stinking drunk. So she's also super young. I mean, she was like 19 or 20 at this point. Melvina and Mosey's relationship had been completely undone by the shocking death of their second child. And Melvina sought comfort instead with a soldier stationed at the Aniston base, much to Nanny's disapproval. So even though they lived in Cedartown, Georgia, she would say that she was going to visit Charlie, her father, who still lived in Blue Mountain. And instead, she was going to the army base to see this new guy. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just – it's all history repeating itself here. Of course. But, like – and it's just, like, such bullshit that she thinks that she can control that from happening by killing an infant. Oh, yeah. And and she directly derailed her daughter's life by doing that. 
So Nanny, of course, did not approve of this new relationship. She could see Melvina making all of the same mistakes that she had made, going off the rails at pretty much the same exact point in her own life that she had gone off the rails. So when Melvina came back from a weekend away at one point, she told her in no uncertain terms that, you know, she's ruining her life, that there was still time for her to find a new respectable husband, that she was still young, and that people would be understanding. And either Melvina didn't believe her mother or she was too far to gone to care because the very next Friday, she showed up with a little Robert in tow, ready for another weekend-long sleepover. And Nanny was like, well, you're going to go see your lover and I don't, I'm not going to babysit while you run off with another man. And, and the two women end up getting into this like raging argument and Nanny would not let Melvina leave. And Melvina refused to listen to a word of it. She said it was her life to live as she saw fit. And she'd had more than enough of her mother's interference. And she basically like started to bring up everything that Nanny had done wrong in her life, except for potentially killing her baby. She was saying that you know, her life wouldn't have been so bad if she had gotten to live with her father. And instead she was raised with Frank who got drunk and hit her, you know? And so she threw everything back in Nanny's faces, all her choices. And she's like, so you know what? The least you can do is watch my kid while I go about and live my life. I also feel like this is like, obviously Nanny doesn't make sense. You already said this, but like she potentially killed the baby to prevent her from having the life that she has. And now she's like, what does she want her to do? Like she wants her to just stay at home with the baby. Like she did with Charlie or. I think that Nanny thought that through Melvina, like she would have another chance. It's kind of like that, like stage mom thing where they felt like they didn't get a chance to be like an actress or something. So they pushed their kids to do it. And I think that she wanted she didn't really approve of Mosey as a husband. She liked him well enough, but like she didn't think it was like the great love of Melvina's life. And Why would you I let think, her just go out and meet some someone else then? She didn't think that this guy was going to marry her. Got it. Okay, okay. I think so. She wanted this guy. She wanted her to stop seeing the the guy at the army base and like actually get divorced and actually meet a new guy. Got it. At okay. least is what I understand. Okay, but Nanny doesn't make sense, so we don't exactly. really know why she could have come up with any reason to have an excuse for the things that she did. So basically, these two women get into this huge ass fight, and <laughs> and Melvina leaves to be with her lover. And Nanny is really, really pissed. It's like basically the first time Melvina has ever stood up to her. And she wants revenge. And without Melvina there to shoulder the blame, she turned to the second best option. Robert. The one human life, yep, that Melvina cherished more than her own. Oh, my God. That's nauseating. Yeah. This is this is a really gnarly. Like the last couple murders were very, very gnarly. This is like the worst parts of the story. So I'm sorry, okay. guys. Really front loaded the kitty murder over here. And it's well, I mean, nothing. I guess that you have to kind of go in chronological order. So it's like You gotta go in chronological order. And it also makes sense. I think we talked about it last week. A lot of killers start with the vulnerable, with children yeah. and the elderly, and that's exactly who she started with. Well, a lot of them start with like squirrels. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Nanny was killing squirrels. They didn't say. <laughs> you know, I feel like that's like normally you're like, oh, my, a lot of little, cats. my little baby boy is dissecting that cat in the backyard. You're like, <laughs> we got a you problem. Got a, you got a young killer. 
Yeah, the old McDonald triangle. That's killing animals, pissing your pants, and setting fires. So, yeah, that's it. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. A psychologist came up with like a way to predict serial killers is if in their childhood they're doing any of those three things and especially if they're doing all three of them i was gonna say kids definitely pee their pants <laughs> yes i'm not gonna think my kid's a serial killer for pissing their <laughs> pants but if they're pissing their pants while starting a fire and torturing an animal <laughs> over that fire then we've got a problem if they become a dissecting arsonist <laughs> yes exactly so yeah, it it didn't help that Frank was basically Nanny and Frank had grown apart at this point too. And Frank would just leave the house all weekend to drink. And I don't think he was having um affairs. I think he was just an alcoholic. Yeah. And he got so much shit from Nanny if he was drunk at home that he just would be like, I'm just leaving for the whole weekend and I'll crash yeah. at friend's house, you know? Yeah. So he wasn't home either. So nobody was there to stop Nanny from what she did. I mean, this is just so, like, she's going to come home and be like, you're a fucking baby killer. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, also, like, I'm giving all these excuses for Nanny, but she's just a psychopath. I mean, she's just psychotic. Yeah. And the next morning, she awoke at dawn to care for little Robert, and she fed him breakfast, and then she baked a batch of cookies with her special ingredient in it, rat poison, which was, in essence, arsenic. Jesus Christ. I don't even know why she did this, but she gave him a lunch of soup. And then after the soup, she gave Robert a plate piled high with cookies and let him eat his fill. Throughout the afternoon, she plied him with more and more of the treats until he was so sluggish and sore that the little tyke went to bed early. At any point, Nanny could have stopped the madness. She could have taken him to the doctor to get his stomach pumped, saying that he accidentally ingested something in their home. But she didn't. She just went to bed instead, knowing full well that she was going to wake up to a dead toddler. How old was he? He was two years old. Oh, my God. Uh, He's the same age as Alden. Oh, what a sick fuck. So, so twisted. Toddlers are Rubik little chubby-cheeked angels. And, like, yes, if you're around them all the time, sometimes there's tantrums in there, like little hell raisers too. But, like, oh, the reason they're so cute is so you don't poison them. Such a, like, endearing age too because they're, like, starting to, like, discover things and learn things and they can eat fun foods like that. Like, and then your grandma's straight up poisoning you. Oh, Yeah. Cookies. You don't say no to grandma's cookies. That is fucked. That's that's more fucked than the banana pudding because it's a child. Oh, it is. This is the worst. Making a two-year-old grandson cookies with rat poison? Come on. It doesn't get any lower than that. As much as I hate bananas, I was really offended about the banana pudding poison because of, like, how cheerful banana pudding looks, you know? (laughs) And, like, vanilla wafers, but this tops the cake. This This tops the this tops the pudding. This tops the pudding. The poison pudding. The poison pudding. I don't know. I think the poison would be worse in Jello because I think it's very like mocking for it to jiggle while it's poisoning you. <laughs> like it's just like <laughs> I'm gonna kill you. Yeah, I think that would be the worst. I would. Like, you might find one. You might find one. I I, I would not put it past you to find Jello poisoning. 
I, I will. I'll look for it. I'm going to look for a jello poisoning now because I think that's just, it's like mean. I think it's mean to give people jello anyway. I mean, it's then, mean to, po- I think it's mean to poison people at all, ever. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we can agree on that one. <laughs> so the, the toddler was obviously gone by the time Nanny got up. And wow. Nanny put on the acting job of her life, attempting to wake him, calling for a doctor, and trying to reach <sighs> Melvina, who is with her lover and Aniston. So this is what Ryan Green had to say about Oh, my God. This. Could you imagine, like, leaving your infant with your mom and your mom gives it poisonous cookies? Like, this is just beyond. I, I honestly cannot imagine this. So the doctor did come and he examined the little boy's body, accounted for his young age, and pronounced him dead of asphyxia, essentially saying the boy had expired of natural causes in the manner that is now known as cot death. There could be no suspicion put upon Nanny at such an unfortunate turn of events. And the fact that she was so obviously racked with grief eliminated any inkling the doctor might have had that foul play was afoot. Oh, my God. And this is also decades after she had killed her own children and in a different state. So nobody connected the dots. No, of course. And she, he doesn't know her. So he doesn't know. She just seems genuinely super upset and confused about how this could have possibly happened. Holy shit. Melvina wouldn't hear of the death of her last remaining child until she finally returned home the following day. All of her suspicions about the hat pin and her second baby's death came flooding back. But once again, Nanny had surrounded herself with sympathetic locals and friends so that she could not be confronted. It was almost a perfect replay of her first murders, punishing the intended victim the most by having them come home to a dead loved one or loved ones in a sea of shame and suspicion about why they hadn't been there in the first place. I mean, she's basically doing the same thing she did to Charlie. Yeah, of course. And I, I it's like crazy because how old was Melvina when the sisters got poisoned? Like there has to be something. Four. Oh, she was only four. Four. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, because like. Kids were like one, two, three, and four. So she was, she was a tiny little girl. Ugh. But I, I wonder if you'd still have something. That didn't sit right. After this, I think she probably looked back. She was like, okay, so my newborn infant died. When I was a very (laughs) small child, my sisters died. At the funeral a few days later, Melvina was back with Mosey, her husband. The grief of losing another child had had her rushing right back into his comforting arms. The two of them stood alongside Florine, her sister, by the graveside and watched as Nanny went into fits of hysterical sobbing before finally flinging herself into the mud. Oh, my God. Drama queen. Mm-hmm. She's doing that the lady doth protest too much act. So Frank had finally resurfaced from his latest binge, so it fell to him to hoist his wife back to her feet and drag her off home before she did herself an injury. But he returned to drink with his adoptive daughters once Nanny was safely squared away. He startled the girls out of their reverie with a sobering announcement. I reckon that I'm next, is what he said. Shit, Frank's no dummy. 
Frank's so dummy, but he doesn't have the balls to just get out like Charlie did. You better run, Frank. The three of them shared their suspicions, but there was no evidence. They couldn't even fully convince themselves that Nanny was capable of the crimes that she had committed. So how could they convince anyone else? So they're like, man, probably definitely killing all these people, right? Right? But they can't prove it. (laughs) Could you imagine like sitting around in like the living room talking about that? About my mom? Like, so mom definitely killed at least two of my siblings and two of my children. You guys think that too, right? And he's like, yep. And then your stepdad goes, yeah, I'm probably next. And you're all like, ha, 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 another shot? Fireball anyone? Oh, my God. We'd need a lot of fireball to be in this family. (laughs) So, obviously, by the time Nanny killed little Robert, her long marriage to Frank wasn't going so well. So the problem here with Frank was, A, he was an alcoholic. He had been abusive. But also, he was kind of ridiculed in the town for being, A, a drunk, but, B, not signing up for World War II. Uh. Yeah, so he looked really cowardly. And and the point was that he he was a coward. And so he hadn't signed up for World War II for a really long time. And then by the time he felt kind of like guilted and shamed into it, they had actually passed a law to prevent textile workers from joining the war because they had the basically all of the men leaving for the war effort had crippled the workplace. So at a certain point, they were like, we have protections about joining for X, Y, and Z essential workers, you know? Yeah. So during this point, a lot of people were really picking on him. So even though he was older at this point, he was getting in like way more bar fights than ever. And he was drinking a lot more because he was losing friends left and right. Like all of his drinking buddies were dying in the war. Yeah. And he was waiting for his wife to kill him. Yeah, I think that would make anyone drink. (laughs) Yeah. And this is around the same time, like I said, he was going on weekend-long benders and just not coming home. Same, dude. Yeah. (laughs) You should never come home. Never. (laughs) The nanny was, like, real, real pissed with him by this time. And when Japan surrendered to the Allied forces, almost everyone in Cedartown, Georgia, treated it like a national holiday, and everyone got off work early, and they went drinking, and they had some fun. And so Frank ended up going out with several coworkers to a handful of bars, and then he went back to a friend's house for homemade moonshine. Ooh, that's some oh. real Southern shit. That is some real Southern shit, and that's also, like, Things you do when you're young that you're like, we need to go to the after party now. It's four in the morning. Who has booze? And you're like, I, I have some schnapps at my house. I was like, yeah, party. Um, is it, is it peach though? <laughs> no, it's peppermint. Peppermint schnapps is almost better. Also, like moonshine too, like down in the South, they like actually make it in a bathtub. So it's got all those like bathtub juices in it. <laughs> like jungle juice. Remember going to like a frat party and they'd have jungle juice in the bathtub? Yeah, and the ice luges. Uh-huh. Oh, you went to a good school if you got ice luges. We didn't I have ice luges. I wouldn't really call BU's Greek life good, but I definitely did a ice luge or two. 
Yeah, can you imagine now with COVID putting your mouth on something that literally every other person at the party has put their mouth on? I am 100% sure that kids are still doing that with COVID. Oh, 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 100%. 100%. I say that like I didn't make out with strangers. <laughs> like at a bar, like ever. Like I'm so old now, I forgot. Yeah, no, I like honestly with ice luge too, it's I feel like I was so focused on keeping my throat open and not like spilling it all over my outfit that I didn't even care about the saliva on the ice part. Gross. It's so gross now that I think of it. (laughs) But you know what? I say that now and it's like okay, let's just pretend COVID wasn't existing. At this time, at 36 years old, if somebody had an ice luge, I'd probably be like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. So after all the moonshine, he called Nanny to pick him up. And when they arrived home, he kind of came on to her a little bit. And they hadn't been very romantic recently. So at first she didn't find it. She was like, this is kind of nice. We're getting back into the groove. He was being very sweet. But then he started, like, he flipped a switch and he started getting super aggressive. So she started telling him no, and he didn't listen. In fact, he covered her mouth and he raped her. Marital rape is not cool. Very not cool. So basically throughout the entire event, Nanny is like, that's it. I'm going to kill him. This is it. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like he had. That was so dumb for him. So dumb. He had no idea who he was playing with, but he did. He knew he was going to be next. And I kind of don't feel bad for him now. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't really feel bad for him anymore. So now the problem was like, how was she going to get him killed? He wasn't a small child or an elderly woman that people kind of expected to be vulnerable. Yeah. He, he also, he didn't really let her prepare food for him, which is very smart on his part. So, but he's a drunk. But he's a drunk. So she found, by watching him, she found his secret stash of homemade corn whiskey that he had buried in a hole in the ground. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. that's a true alcoholic. Yep. So while he was sleeping off a drunk, she she un she unburied it. She dug it up. <laughs> she unburied that's it. A, that's a pregnancy brain thing. That is. Yeah. So she she digs up the corn whiskey. She pours the arsenic in it, and it's already like super gross homemade whiskey. Sealed it, buried it back in the yard. And she just looked the other way when he went out to the backyard that next day. And the very next morning after that, she found Frank's dead body in the backyard. So she did end up calling the police. But first, she took special care to rinse out the moonshine jar so there was no evidence of the arsenic. And she placed it back where it had been next to Frank. And she also removed all of the evidence of the poison from her kitchen. Then she called the police. The corpse was practically pickled with liquor when the doctor came to examine it. And he was so full of cheap corn whiskey that the scent of it overpowered the decomposition smell of his body. So Nanny hadn't moved the body at all. So Frank still looked as though he was contorted in pain. So he was still like lying there where he had fallen, moonshine in hand, passed out and exposed to the elements. 
Whether his heart gave out, exposure got him, or cirrhosis of the liver finally finished him off, it appeared that the drink had done him in. The police did not suspect foul play, and again, no autopsy was performed. Crazy. She is just killing all of these people and calling the cops and being like, look what bad luck I've had. She, There's a formula. She's just following it. And this guy was the town drunk, so the cops knew him. He had been in bar fights before. He was always wasted, so this wasn't something that came as a shock to them. A funeral was held, and for the first time in Nanny's life, she was not only free, but had quite a bit of money as well. Early in their marriage, before the drinking had really taken hold, Frank had secured a pretty decent life insurance policy, which now paid enough for Nanny to buy a small farm on the outskirts of Jacksonville, Alabama, and have enough left over for travel and other comforts. She went back to her old friend, the Lonely Hearts columns, and once again began picking up pen pal suitors, just as she had 16 years earlier when she had met Frank. So let's talk about where Nanny went when she had this newfound money. <laughs> During the two years straight between to hell. She went straight to hell. That was later. She definitely got sent straight to hell later. During the two years between Frank's death and her next great romance, Nanny was very rarely home. She traveled the United States by train, visiting cities and potential suitors everywhere she went. So there are some partial records of her staying in both Idaho and New York at different times. And it seemed like she was living the high life there. In the state of New York, there were some hints from conversations with friends and correspondents of Nanny that she had made a rapid arrangement to marry a man named Hendrix, but no marriage license has ever been found to support this claim. And all official biographers of Nanny's life have been forced to kind of assume that this marriage didn't really occur, just as the police did later when they did their investigations. So it's possible that she had married another man and killed him in New York, but we don't know that for sure. Okay. At the end of this Idaho-New York odyssey, she met a charming lifelong bachelor named Arlie Lanning, who lived in Lexington, North Carolina. After a few months of correspondence, Nanny boarded a train to go meet Arlie. She was 42 years old, once divorced, once widowed, but still vibrant and ready for romance. In person, she wowed Arlie, and he impressed her in turn by squiring her around town for three days. He was well-known in Lexington, a former laborer who now ran his own crew and company, an upstanding man who had served with distinction in the Navy during the war. The two got along like a house on fire, and by the end of Nanny's visit, they were making wedding arrangements. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh oh, we know what that means. I like Uh-oh, that I brought up. I brought up. Um, so I married an axe murderer like a couple episodes ago, and she's like legit like that woman, the Black Widow in this. So yes, they were making wedding arrangements and planning her return. Within a week, she was back, and they had a small church service in Lexington, well attended on his side and completely lonely on her side as her daughters had completely cut ties with her finally after their stepfather's mysterious death. Unfortunately for Nanny, the honeymoon didn't last long. Arlie couldn't seem to kick the habits of his bachelor lifestyle and he was still sneaking off to drink and see other women. (sighs) These guys. I know. Guys, don't marry Nanny if you're going to fool around on her. 
So one day he slept too late with one of his lovers after a boozy lunch and missed dinner time with Nanny. Um, by the time he made it home, the sky was already pitch dark and his dinner ice cold. And he found a note that said, going on a trip, be back soon. So to actually, to Nanny's credit, every time Arlie misbehaved, she actually just kind of took off. It would become this passive aggressive habit of hers. Whenever he displeased her, she would disappear for a few days or a week or even once an entire month. And whenever she came back, Arlie would lavish her with attention, gifts and apologies, swearing off the booze and the other ladies. However, he would relapse and poof, Nanny would be gone again. And what they think she was doing at that time was visiting other suitors and trying to line up husband number four. Dude, baller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The pattern went on for nearly five years, but at the end of 1951, a lethal flu virus hit Lexington, forcing Arlie to stay at home and keep it in his pants for the first time ever. Lethal flu virus that keeps you stuck inside sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they contained it to just Lexington? Um, I don't know exactly where it was, but it was hitting Lexington especially hard at this point. During this holiday season, Nanny seemed to snap. Her daughters and family members didn't reach out to her, and she was depressed and lonely within her marriage. Nanny was itching for a new life, and that meant she needed a new man. She began baking Arlie his favorite pies made with sweetened stewed prunes with a special ingredient, of course. Due to the massive virus outbreak, it took the doctor a while to get to Arlie's body that fateful January morning. Oh, no. When the doctor finally made it around to her house after tackling a half dozen other calls of a very similar nature, he declared Arlie Lanning dead on the spot. A passive examination resulted in the cause of death being listed as heart failure. But that was merely the shorthand that people at the time were using to refer to the flu deaths. Oh, that sounds familiar, too. Uh-huh. So basically, she picked the right time to do this because everybody was dying in this town. However, there was no suspicion about what had happened to Arlie. And while the whole town mourned his passing, they again banded around poor Nanny in her trying time and did what they could to support the poor widow. It was the same thing that happened every time that Nanny instigated a tragedy. She was uh, the immediate recipient of all of the benefits that the tragedy brought. The center of attention, the recipient of charity and gifts. All of the kindness that she had missed out on in her early life was delivered to her in spades every time she killed someone. It's hardly surprising that murder soon went from being the means to the end in itself for her. Psychopath. Psycho. Arlie's family even rallied around Nanny, offering her support while she feigned grief and packed her belongings to be sent back to her farm in Alabama. So Nanny's plan was to stay in North Carolina just long enough to settle Arlie's will and insurance and then get the hell out of there. However, her deadly designs didn't go to plan when she discovered that Arlie hadn't updated his will since their wedding and the house that she had been living in for the past five years legally now belonged to Arlie's sister. So she had also failed to arrange for a life insurance policy to be set up on Arlie, whom had never bothered to get one for himself. So Nanny was beyond frustrated to think that she was getting out of this marriage completely with nothing. And Arlie's sister had recently fallen upon hard times. So when, you know, some of the family members were like, hey, she's the widow 
you should probably let her have the house. It's his wife. His sister was like, oh, hell no. He left it for me in the will. I'm not going to give it to her just because she's his wife. And that's legally the way it was done. So outwardly, Danny appeared gracious because she always liked that public support and she had to act like a lady publicly. So she was like, oh, it's fine. You know, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Like, I'll just have to move back to Alabama. It's okay. She was acting like that. That's the way the poisonous cookie crumbles. (laughs) That's the way the poisonous cookies goes down my grandson's throat. Um, but behind closed doors, she was scheming and going through all of his paperwork to figure out what money she could wrench from the stone here. And <laughs> she came across an insurance document for the home that stated in the case of catastrophe, the insurance payment would come to her as the wife of the policyholder rather than the new owner of the house. So obviously she burned the house down. Of course she did. Of course she did. What else would she do? It makes it only makes sense. That's the only thing you would do, right? No one was inside, though. No, she didn't manage to kill anyone with this okay. one as well. Because that would have been like two, like a twofer. Yeah. So while the the house was burned down, she had to wait for them to do an arson investigation. Obviously. So she moved in with her mother-in-law. It was a long month of waiting for Nanny. This is according to Ryan Green's book. Trapped in the pokey little house with her mother-in-law as the local fire department and the insurance company investigated the fire that had gutted Arlie's house. But eventually they gave in. Nobody could prove that the fire had started in Nanny's beloved kitchen and that it had been an act of arson, even if everyone kind of suspected it, and Arlie's sister would not stop shouting about it. None of Nanny's belongings went up in the blaze, of course. They had already been shipped back to Alabama as she graciously moved aside for her sister-in-law to take the house. (laughs) (laughs) So suspicions began to swirl around Nanny as a result of the fire, and she soon realized that her mother-in-law had moved on from being her caretaker during a trying time of grieving to being her jailer, watching her every move and assessing her guilt. Nanny had all that she needed to move away, except for some way to untangle herself from the Lanning family and their expectations of her. So while she was living with her mother-in-law, Nanny had taken over the cooking responsibilities in the home, and it was easy for Nanny to slip her old special ingredient in the old woman's food. Mrs. Lanning suffered a long bout of illness following her only son's death, perhaps caused by the deadly flu virus that had taken Arlie's life. So no one was surprised when she succumbed to the illness and passed away. Even the sister-in-law who was convinced that Nanny set the house on fire didn't suspect her of killing her own mother. Wow. She really, like, had the wool over the eyes, huh? She did. She actually thanked Nanny for taking care of her at the end of her life and feeding her her favorite softened stewed prunes. Oh, God. So after Mrs. Lanning's funeral, Nanny boarded a train back to Alabama with several extra thousand dollars in her pocketbook than when she had arrived. Nanny didn't get much rest on her farm, though, before she heard that her younger sister, Dovey, had taken ill. 
Dovey had been suffering from a mysterious wasting illness for a few weeks before Nanny's arrival. So no one was alarmed when Dovey's trip to the grave was hastened and helped along by her doting big sis who fed her her special stewed prunes for a week before she passed. Manchless. She knows where to hide her arsenic. And also, why are all these people enjoying prunes so much? How bad was it in the 40s and 50s that you were, like, really looking forward to stewed prunes? Oh. So Nanny had literally nothing to gain from this murder other than perhaps the sympathy from the townsfolk. So I feel like at this point, she just liked killing. Exactly. Like, the power of it. Yeah. Exactly. She's, like, one of those, like, nurses that kill, like, hundreds of people because they can. Yeah, or doctors. Yep, or doctors. When her mother appeared alone for Dovey's funeral, Nanny found out that her father, James, had also passed. Hence, Lou's absence at her daughter's deathbed. Nanny was devastated by the news, but not for the reasons a normal person would be. She had always hoped she'd someday get revenge for the myriad of sins he had committed against her in her youth. Alas, the old codger had just died of natural causes, so she never got her bloody or pruny revenge on him. Nope, she was too busy killing a bunch of poor innocent people. (laughs) I know. Lou was left destitute by James's death. He had only barely been managing to hold on to the farm, and with him now gone, the farm was about to be taken by the bank in a month's time. Lou's surviving children, who had also endured abuse at James's hands while Lou had looked the other way, didn't feel especially warm towards their mother. The job of shutting down the farm and taking on the burden of Lou fell to Nanny. You can imagine how long Lou survived in Nanny's care. Oh, Not God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Barely a few months after the farm had been shuttered, Lou was meeting her husband, daughter, and grandchildren in the afterlife. Nearly all of them having been put there by Nanny. And great-grandchild. Yep, exactly. And great-grandchildren. She's just like knocking down the family tree. Like she's just like (laughs) chopping it down. Unbelievable. (laughs) After her mother's death, Nanny was free of all the ties that bind. Her parents and husbands were dead. Her children feared and reviled her. And her surviving siblings wanted nothing to do with her. She was untethered, fancy-free, and had her own plot of land. And what was left, of course, of the arson insurance money. So she was ready for a new beginning and, of course, a new romantic interest. Girlfriend never stopped believing that true love was right around the corner. She could be like a motivational speaker here. (laughs) Never too old to start over, says Nanny Doss. In 1953, Nanny became a member of a more mature and exclusive mail-order dating club called the Diamond Circle Club. The club charged $15 annually, which was not insubstantial. It's just about $145 in today's money. So that was kind of an upscale one. Like, think about a dating site that you can do for free or one you have to pay $150 a year for, you know? Yeah, yeah. Nanny was pushing 50 at this point and looking for a more mature, well-off man who wasn't a drunkard or a cheat. She discovered one older gentleman named Richard Morton who came across charming and genuine in his letters. He said he was a believer in love and looking forward to meeting his forever companion to enjoy his remaining time on earth with. Nanny traveled out to Kansas to meet the retired salesman in his 60s and found him to be even more handsome than she anticipated. 
Richard's father had been Native American and he was the very definition of tall, dark, and handsome. So as the trial weekend progressed, he doled out sweet presents and toe-curling kisses in equal measure. And Fanny was officially in love once again. Richard was too, because immediately after that weekend, he wrote to the Diamond Circle Club requesting that both he and Nanny be removed from the members list and thanking them profusely for making introductions to, quote, the sweetest and most wonderful woman that I have ever known. Just you wait, Richard. Just you wait, Dickie boy. Wow. The two nearly senior lovebirds were married one month after meeting. Nanny initially enjoyed her life in Kansas. Richard had a big, beautiful farm and was retired so they could spend all day together unencumbered by the demands of work or children. Nanny became suspicious, however, when Richard began making frequent trips into town and staying there all day. Curious to find out what he was up to in the small town, she began attending weekly appointments at the local beauty salon where gossip was in even greater abundance than hairspray. Oh, my God. Where you get all the good tea. All the the, juice. All the juice. The women at the salon informed her that prior to Nanny's arrival, Richard had had a string of affairs with younger women. Some of them rumored to be of the sugar baby, sugar daddy type arrangement variety. This wouldn't have bothered (laughs) Nanny at all if it hadn't been for the fact that some of the beauty shop women said that they had it on good authority that he hadn't ended one of these dalliances. And that's exactly where Richard was when he was gone for those long days. To make matters worse, Richard was in the habit of buying duplicates of the presents he lavished the women with, one for Nanny and one for his younger lover. Oh my God, how dumb can you be? Mm-hmm. So the women were all really surprised when they told Nanny all this information and she kind of took it well. She had, over the course of a few weeks, been kind of like portraying a very good image of herself, getting them to like her, slowly getting them to feed her information until by the time they told her, they're like, oh, honey, like we didn't want to tell you, but we now we know you so well. We've got to like tell you this terrible information about your husband. So she had them like totally wrapped around her little finger And then when Richard came to pick her up after the women had told her all this stuff, they were so surprised that she didn't like just immediately break down and like attack him that she was just kind of like, okay, let's go now and like look sad. So they're like, oh, that poor little thing. And so they were like all on Nanny's side. Richard had made a terrible mistake when he married Nanny with no intention of being faithful to her. His kindness combined with fidelity would likely have brought him along in happy retirement with Nanny, who was so let down by the other men in her life by this point that she was willing to accept many flaws except for this one. So he may have lied about being faithful only to her, but Nanny was concealing something considerably more dangerous in her own history. So he's kind of a player, but she's a murderer. Do you think that she would have murdered him if he wasn't cheating on her? I don't think so. I genuinely believe that every single time she was looking for love. and That's kind of how I feel too. I feel like every single time she was genuinely looking to find the one and settle down and be happy. But she's crazy. And as soon as they crossed her or they did something that just ticked that box and turned that dial, she couldn't turn the murder off. No, murder was like at an 11. 
every single one of these times, I mean, other than like her mother and her sister, which she might have been harboring her own resentments, every yeah. single one of them was because she was pissed off. Like, think about it when Charlie left, when she got yeah. in the fight with her daughter, when her husband raped her, when, yeah. you know, she found out somebody was cheating. Every single time was a response to something highly emotional, you know? Yeah, yeah. She just, that's one of the things that they say can be caused by these early childhood uh, brain damages is uh, poor impulse control, you know? Yeah. Nanny immediately began writing to a new crop of gentlemen through the Lonely Hearts columns and filling out life insurance policies for her still new husband. This time, she was not going to be caught without getting any money. Getting her hands on his private documents while he slept or was in town, Nanny realized that Richard's finances were a mess. The house had been remortgaged to the hilt. His pension barely scratched the interest on his debts. And his extravagant spending on the two women would have likely put them in the poorhouse eventually. Nanny made quick work of both the paperwork and Richard. Only three months into the marriage, Nanny made herself a widow for the third time. This time, baking him a stewed prune and apple pie he found delectable, if a little odd in the aftertaste. Did he actually say that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that great? Oh, my God. A little odd. So... Again, she calls the doctor. Richard went to sleep one night and simply didn't wake up the next morning. He was an old man, so there was nothing to be suspicious about as far as the doctor was concerned. And while the women of town knew about a very good motive for foul play to be afoot, none of them were even slightly inclined to share that view with the police or their husbands. If Nanny had killed her husband, as a few of them suspected, then he had it coming and she was a local heroine. Wow. <gasps> oh she did linger for long in Kansas after Richard had died, just long enough for the bank to foreclose on his house and for the various life insurance policies that she had taken out to pay off. When all was said and done, she was up almost $2,000 from this marriage, paid out in the form of a half dozen separate insurance policies that she had taken out on Richard immediately after the marriage. In 1953, that amount of money was equivalent to about $20,000 today. Not the fortune that she had hoped to make out of the arrangement, but still a pretty good chunk of change. I'd say. Mm-hmm. So Nanny had gotten the jump on finding her next suitor this time by starting the search before the last one was even in the ground and her efficiency paid off. One singular month after Richard Martin's funeral, Nanny married husband number five, Samuel Doss. From one month after burying one, she got married to the next one. That isn't the quickest turnaround time though for us, is it? No, because... He was officially dead because we've had people that weren't officially divorced get married before they were divorced. Yeah. But from but from killing to marriage, maybe this is the fastest. Not For most other people, me. that would look suspicious. <laughs> if you <laughs> buried your spouse and then you were married one month later, people would be a little suspicious of that. Yeah. But once again, she's moving around. She's meeting men from all over the country on these Lonely yep. Hearts columns, which is basically just old school dating sites, you know? Yep. So in 
So she had found this guy, Samuel, and he was a truly upstanding gentleman this time. He was a non-drinker and someone whose moral code would prevent infidelity. Samuel was a handsome 59-year-old who looked much younger due to his years of clean living. He was a highway inspector and lay preacher on Sundays. Though she wasn't crazy about Oklahoma, where Samuel lived, she could tell that the problems that had plagued her with her previous husbands wouldn't be an issue with clean-cut conservative Samuel. However, his prudent and proper way of life soon grated on Nanny. After moving into his home in Tulsa, Nanny found Samuel to be a boring, cheap, judgy killjoy. She got real bored real fast. He was obsessive about how clean she kept the house, inspecting it every day when he came home, penny-pinching to the extreme, not allowing Nanny to run the electric fan on even exceptionally hot days, and forcing her to buy the cheapest cuts of meat at the store. The final straw came when Samuel outlawed television and her absolute favorite thing on earth since she was a small girl, her romance books and magazines. Oh, so he's just being a dick. He's just being a dick. He forbade them from entering the home, claiming that the romance books were peddled to the lowest common denominator of humanity and encouraged sin and evil practices. Oh. Yeah. Nanny was not yet prepared to end this marriage so soon after her last husband's death. So instead of murder or divorce, she took herself home for a brief stay in Alabama, where she took up correspondence with a new crop of potential husbands and made plans for her fifth husband's eternal rest. She made her return to Oklahoma and set her murder plan into action. Okay, so this is an account from Black Widow, Ryan Green's book. In Samuel Doss, Nanny faced a challenge. Samuel was there every single moment that she was in the kitchen, lingering and loitering. Worse yet, he had little stomach for sweet treats, and without sugar to cover the taste of the arsenic that she had always used, Nanny was at a loss at how to poison him. Eventually, she resorted to just stirring it into the cup of coffee that he had with his dinner each night. By September, only three months since their wedding, and four months since she had buried her last husband. This gradual buildup of poison had begun to take its toll. Samuel's appetite and strength dwindled. He shed 15 pounds of weight and took to his bed for a week, constantly racked throughout all this time with spasms and stomach cramps. His doctor was stumped, eventually hospitalizing Samuel so his condition could receive around-the-clock care. He was diagnosed with a massive infection of the intestinal tract, and started immediately on a course of penicillin. But even with the latest medical knowledge deployed, he still did not seem to recover. He lay in the hospital attended to by Dr. Schwelbein, a gastroenterologist who specializes in cases like his, for 23 days before he made a recovery. His dutiful wife, Nanny, was there by his bedside every single one of those days, impressing everyone with her profound kindness and the deep love that she clearly harbored for Samuel. She had to have been pissed. She's so pissed. Nanny's outward expressions fooled all those who encountered her, but inside she was seething. Samuel was far healthier and more resistant to death than her previous husbands had been. She also didn't know how much of the poison she could administer nightly because it was much harder to deliver arsenic undetected in a cup of coffee than in a sugary sweet pie. 
So she was <laughs> kind of stymied with this one. This was like a real problem for Nanny. So was she giving him the coffee at the hospital? Yes. I oh think. Oh my God. I'm pretty sure she was. I'm I'm pretty sure she was trying to sneak it in, but she probably was less effective at the hospital because she had to be really sneaky. Of course. Yeah. When he, when he was released from the hospital on the 23rd day, he was welcomed at home with a beautiful meal from his devoted wife, a roast of pork, his favorite with all the trimmings. And of course, a steaming hot cup of coffee, just how he liked it. After a forced healthy diet at the hospital, Samuel was ravenous and ate heartily, washing every bite down with a poisonous coffee while Nanny made sure to top up every mug. By the time Nanny had finished cleaning the kitchen, Samuel was already complaining of stomach pain. She tucked him into bed and sat up reading one of her forbidden romance novels while he wailed in pain throughout the night. <laughs> Man, do not cross oh this bitch. No. Also, like... You've been in the hospital for 23 days. Like, you're really going to eat another meal from her right now? Yeah, don't trust her. Oh, God. When the ambulance answered the call in the morning, Nanny had to muster up real tears, though it was difficult. Samuel's long bout of illness was known to the doctor on duty, who ascribed his death the same gastric infection that had been plaguing him. His body was sent off to the hospital morgue without a second thought. Once again, Nanny had gotten away with murder... Or at least she would have if it wasn't for one pesky specialist, Dr. Schwelbein. Schwelbein was Schwelbein. Schwelbein. It's S-C-H-W-E-L-B-E-I-N. Schwelbein. Schwelbein was a genuine expert in his field and was absolutely puzzled as to how resistant Samuel's infection had been to antibiotics. When he encountered the body at the morgue, he knew something was absolutely not right. Legally, Schwelbein had no right to conduct an autopsy on the body, even if he had his suspicions about the cause of death. The official report had already been filed. Still, his curiosity and overwhelming suspicions would not relent. So he did the only thing that he could do to discover the truth. He approached Nanny directly and asked her for permission to conduct an autopsy on the body. So this part is from Black Widow and listen to how smart this guy is. He had cornered her at home amidst a crowd of mourners and begun talking loudly about the curious death of her husband. The gathered townsfolk were fascinated to hear that, despite outward appearances, Samuel's illness had actually been terribly unusual, possibly the result of some sort of environmental contaminant that he had come into contact with as a result of his work. It could be a public health crisis if not investigated properly. While it may cause her some distress to know that Samuel's body was to be examined, surely she could take some comfort in the fact that doing so could save the lives of countless more. If they had been alone, it would have been possible that Nanny could talk her way out of it. But as she was, surrounded by witnesses, there was nothing she could do but give her consent and sign the damnable doctor's permission slip. The very same appearance of respectability that had always protected Nanny also now damned her now that somebody was actually investigating her crimes. In Samuel Doss's stomach, Schwelbein found almost half of a pork roast with all of the trimmings, barely digested, the remnants of the coffee, and enough cyanide to kill a horse. It was damning evidence that could point to only one suspect. 
Uh-oh, you in trouble, Nanny. Only hours after the autopsy, Nanny was being interviewed by the police where she flatly denied murdering her husband. Her tone was super suspicious, though. She kept letting out strangled little yelps of laughter and giggling hysterically throughout the interrogation. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, exactly. (laughs) For hours and hours, the detectives got nowhere with Nanny, who only laughed as if the idea of her murdering her husband was ludicrous. This Uh is, of course, how she got her nickname as the Giggling Granny. The local police were at a loss. They knew she had committed the poisoning, but she wouldn't admit to it, and a jury would be hard-pressed to convict the sweet grandmotherly type without hard evidence or a confession. So Special Agent Ray Page was sent in after Nanny had exhausted the local detectives. He had looked up Nanny's history and had a good hunch that they weren't just looking at one homicide here. Paige was the one who finally got through to her when he asked, Do you believe in ghosts, Nanny? The question was so out of place that it broke through her veneer of good humor and left her silent. Paige pressed on. A few years doing my job, you start to believe in them. They don't haunt places, you see. They haunt people. I meet a lot of haunted people doing my job. People that have done wrong and know that they've done wrong. So this, again, is from Black Widow. Nanny giggled again. I keep telling you, boys, I don't know what you're talking about. How many husbands have you buried, Nanny? How many of their ghosts are in this room with us right now? The sparkle in her eyes blinked out, and for just one moment, Paige could see the black abyss lurking behind her mask of sanity. She heaved a sigh, but still said nothing. We can do this the hard way, with me running around the country, gathering up evidence of all the folks that you've killed. If I have to do that, then I'll be pushing for the death penalty. But if you admit to what you've done, then things will go a little easier on you. There was a long moment of silence. Then she let out a little giggle. All right. All right. I put rat poison in his coffee. She just came out with it. After Nanny admitted to Paige, she gave her reasons for killing him. He was a cruel miser. How could she live like that? Over the course of the next day, Nanny confessed to killing four out of five of her husbands and at least one mother-in-law. But she outright refused to admit the murders in her own family, her daughter's grandchildren, sister, and mother. Yeah. well, She still did it. She 100% did it. Uh She just... Needed to not admit it to herself either, probably. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I think that, especially if you think about how the women responded to old Richard's death, like they didn't yeah. care. She felt like she could spin her husband's to being like in the right versus you. there's no way you can spin anything when you're killing your own family members. No. And children. And children and little babies. Yeah. So the authorities didn't press for total honesty. They quite honestly had enough to go on based on her written confessions to make sure she'd never see the light of day again. Despite her completely insane and unimaginable crimes, Nanny was ruled sane and fit to stand trial. The state only bothered to pursue a conviction for the murder of Samuel Doss due to the media circus that was brewing and the wish to convict as soon as possible. She pled guilty to murder on May 17, 1955 in the criminal court of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yeah, that's that's an appropriate LWAP situation. I think it is. Yeah. Nanny was only spared the death penalty based on her sex, so... 
That's one double standard that works in our favor. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> we'll take what we can get. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Nanny Doss spent the last years of her life in the Oklahoma State Prison corresponding with fans of the giggling granny, both male and female. In 1965, 10 years after she had been imprisoned, Nanny died of leukemia, totally and utterly alone. You just said, oh, no, like she's an actually nice grandmother, not a mass murderer, serial killer. (laughs) I think that's like why she's so interesting. I think so, too. I mean, she had fans like people were thought she was charming, that she was funny and she killed babies. And you're sitting here going like. Oh, poor old nanny. It's it's unbelievable. She's a mind yeah. act. Oh, God. Wow. That's Nanny Dawes. Isn't that crazy? Aren't you shocked you had never heard that story? I am. I feel like there has to be some of our listeners who haven't heard that yet. Yeah. And if they have, I'm curious about what was different. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And it's also hard. I mean, any of these older murders, I think that there's a lot of details that go missing you know you don't get the same you don't have the same like taped confessions like videotaped confessions you don't have digital trails you don't have a lot of the information that we have on murders nowadays yeah oh my god that was so crazy wow so yeah that was nanny doss if you have hung out with us this far congratulations um thank you and i applaud you (laughs) And if you liked this story, please, please, please uh, drop us a line and we will drop you a sticker or two. Or two. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In conclusion, don't, don't go for the sweet and stewed prunes, guys. Never a good dessert option. Pretty gross in general, even when they're not poisoned. I know, but unfortunately in this story, you also can't go for grandma's cookies. So it's like, what are you left with? Lose, lose, yeah. I I think it's pretty safe to say if your wife is a serial poisoner, uh, you probably shouldn't cheat on her. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you should probably play it safe and just not cheat on your wife in general, but definitely not if she's a serial killer. And as always, we're all just one bad nanny away from getting murdered. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye.